0: Hello folks and welcome back. I'm your host Simon Ward and this is a High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast where I can promise that you'll always hear a Yorkshire accent and we'll never have any adverts. We chat with our guests about peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery, longevity, relationships and happiness because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first sprint triathlon, set a PB at your next race or just keep turning up until you're in your 70s. Each of these elements has huge significance. One way to do this is with regular movement practice. And if you have difficulty fitting it into your daily routine, I've made it easy for you by putting together a series of stretching movements in a single page PDF document, along with video links, which you can download for free. If you'd like to get hold of a copy, please look for the very obvious link in the show notes. So I get a lot of inspiration from hearing the stories of elite athletes. After all, that's what got me started in the sport, but I get way, way more inspiration from hearing stories from normal people like you and me, and none more so than those who have survived and overcome overwhelming odds, not just to complete a triathlon, but actually stay alive. Steve Lovelace, today's guest, is one such person. At the age of 20, Steve suffered catastrophic injuries in a lumberjack accident. After being trapped for two hours, He was released from the tree and eventually made it to hospital where he was given a 50-50 chance of surviving the night. He was temporarily paralysed below the waist due to his spine injuries and the doctors said he wouldn't walk again. But he swore that he would walk out of hospital and three months later he managed to take a few steps to prove them wrong. He subsequently completed that triathlon and this is his story. So let's crack on and hear from Steve. Oh, welcome to the show. Steve Lovelace. Yes,
1: hey, thank you so I'm so, so happy to be here and thank you for the opportunity
0: um, for even taking notice of (laughs) me. Well, I couldn't resist the opportunity to chat with you when we read your story. Um, I read a little article that you forwarded that was in Triathlete Magazine about the challenges you had getting started. And then I watched that little video you put together on YouTube. And once I saw that, picture of the tree (laughs) you had me there and I thought I need to chat with this fella um so for for those of you who uh, weren't paying attention at my introduction I I didn't give you as much information then Steve Lovelace was one of the very first challenged athletes para-athletes we call them para-triathletes now but that those titles came along after Steve Lovelace had sort of started, done his bit and probably retired from triathlon. And this is going right back into the 80s. But before then, what we need to do is talk to Steve about how an 18-year-old guy full of life and ambition and the joy of living um, ended up in this, just what was a you know life-changing and catastrophic position. So, Steve, um, I'm going to uh, hand over to you now. All right. Tell us about what happened when you were 18.
1: Well, actually, I was uh, 19 at okay. the time when I, was, I transferred, but 20 when the accident happened. So I was basically cutting on a tree one day uh, with a friend of mine, and it happened to do what they call a barber chair, which is where the tree kind of splits in half and falls over, forms a T. And as we were cutting on the part that was still attached to the ground, I remember looking up at this tree thinking how bad it would hurt if somebody got caught in this, how bad that would be. And then literally moments later, I was waking up in that tree, which was so freakish, um, found myself paralyzed below the waist, eventually there. My face was hit side to side by this tree and basically split straight down the middle, frontal bone, um, maxillary and mandible. And my left wrist got crushed, and it's still rather crooked. Um, my heart got bruised, and then I had three lumbar vertebrae that basically just exploded. So I spent about three and a half months in the hospital. Get out three and a half months, and I'm basically there to rehab myself at that point. So um,
0: wow, and a, and a I, you know, it's taking you about a minute to recap that. I'm sure the uh, the reality of it that it was. Um, it was far worse than that. It, it it was a bit contrived, wasn't it? Your rescue because uh, your friend couldn't get um, use his chainsaw, and then he had to run for help. And they found a farmer yes. who'd got a chainsaw that hadn't been used for twelve months, which miraculously <laughs> fired up the first time, and they were able to cut you out. But even then, I guess you know you're you're, you're trapped there. Um, you're waiting for all this. You're in so much pain, and then you've still got to go for the hospital and and, and get. You know, you've got to wait for the uh, the paramedics to come and get you, and um, And that was only the start of the pain, wasn't it, really?
1: Yeah, you know, I was in the tree for two hours before they got me to a hospital and they had to transfer me to another hospital. And then the reality of everything started to sink in, Mm. Uh, especially when you're told you're getting about a 50-50 chance of living through that first night. They were concerned about my heart. They didn't know what you know this massive impact had done to my body. We're still trying to figure all this out. And then they said, you know, because... Got no feeling below the waist, you'll likely never walk again. To which I said, as a 20 year old kid, and only probably as a 20 year old kid can muster, mm-hmm. no, I'm walking back to this hospital. And I, I declared mean, it at that point in time to them and to pretty much everybody.
0: The force that you were hit with, what would that be like being hit by a car or a truck at 40 or 50 miles an hour?
1: Oh, I would think at least. Yeah. And this yeah. tree was anywhere between 30 and 36 inches across. So it was massive, it covered from my head down to the top of my legs where I was bearing all the weight on my legs, which is when I knew I was paralyzed. I could not feel the massive weight of this tree. And as I reached down and felt around my head and my legs, there was nothing there. It didn't scare me. I never freaked out. I never cried. I'm a pretty stoic individual in general. And even then it just kind of showed that, Hey, we just have to get through this. There's nothing that freaking out is going to do for us here. So.
0: Mm. Well, in that little video, there are there's a picture of the tree, or at least a tree that's... Was that the tree that's in the picture?
1: Yes, and you can see that the guy that's sitting on it, I mean, he's sitting relatively high up. His legs aren't uh, horizontal at the top. They're stretched down because that tree was so big, and it split literally directly down the middle. And you can see the other half laying in the foreground of that. It's not a great picture, and this was, after all, before uh, cell phones and, you know, mm. mobile cameras and things of that nature. So there were no voyeuristic people out there taking pictures. It was all about getting me out of the tree.
0: Yeah. So you, if, if you watch the little video, which we'll put a, a link to in the show notes, uh, fairly early on, you can see a picture of the tree. You can see what Steve means when he refers to it as a barber's chair split. Um, you can get a, an impression of the size of it and then after that comes the photographs of, of you lying there in the hospital with the big brace around your head and you know your whole body's bandaged up and your right, your left leg I think, is all, all bandaged up and you, your arm and um, I guess you were sort of pretty much immobile for several weeks were you?
1: Yeah, well, actually, I was in that bed. It was that bed was what took place from a or uh, replaced a striker bed or striker frame, which is where they would turn you prone to supine uh, if you had a spinal injury to prevent fluid from settling in your lungs. Mm-hmm. This thing tilted about 20 degrees off either side on a very slow rotation. I called it my rotisserie, and it was. I was in this bed because we had to let my spine stabilize. There was so much swelling around my spine. And what we realized eventually is that that swelling was what was causing the paralysis. The longer the swelling went on, the more the blood supply would be cut off. And the more likely I would have been paralyzed. But mm-hmm. uh, it took about two weeks before they could get me into surgery because of that. But They were constantly draining that fluid off of that bed mm-hmm. and Yeah, they had me totally strapped in. As as you can see, that's one of the last pictures of me that shows that I have these massive legs and these big arms. I weighed about 150 pounds. I was 5'8". So it was all muscle. uh, And that body slowly withered away to 90 pounds before I got out of the hospital.
0: So how long were you in the hospital before you did eventually manage to take those few steps you'd sort of promised the surgeons you'd take?
1: Yeah, it was three and a half months. I was in the hospital. I was on my back rolling side to side with a pillow underneath me for about eight weeks before they started doing physical therapy. And the physical therapy started very gently, although extremely painful. Uh, The therapist would grab my leg from the foot and cradle it and then lift it about five degrees off the bed and even five degrees after being immobile and wasting weight to what I had done because I had my mouth wired shut. So I wasn't able to eat any solid food for about six to eight weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, But even that five degrees was just so painful. But I I found a workaround. (laughs) I used to time my pain shots right ahead of my therapy session Mm -hmm. so that I could push myself through more therapy. And, you know, I told the guy, like, hey, you're not going to hurt me now. I just got an IM shot on morphine, which Mm -hmm. that'll pretty much set anybody on uh, a level edge of being able to do whatever they need to. So.
0: Okay. So, so three and a half months, um, you were able to go home then. So by then you'd got, you'd got some strength back in your legs. So you didn't have, you weren't paralyzed anymore, but I guess, you, you know, if you've crushed three vertebrae, that's still going to result in, um, or at least it, you know, logically it was seen to me, it's going to still res- result in a few messages and nerve signals, not getting to your legs. So, um, those, those steps that you took must've been exhausting.
1: Oh yeah. I, and, it was four, and there's a picture of me in the. I was, I was horrible about not wanting pictures back then, uh, but I'm so thankful that there are a few that actually exist because they're all very poignant. The uh-huh. one with me standing with the crutches, you can see the wheelchair in the background, of the car in the in the foreground, and I took my four steps. My mom stepped back, took those pictures. I'm sure she had tears rolling in her eyes, and. That's really when the the journey began for me. Um, I did end up going to a rehabilitation center for about three and a half more months. So more than half a year out of my life spent in institutions, which was pretty significant and and tons of pills and, you know, all kinds of therapy. But ultimately, when I get out of the, uh, the rehabilitation center, I can still barely shuffle across the floor. I'm in extreme pain. I've got a uh, foot drop and weakness in my left leg. Paralysis. Basically, that paralysis was, was uh, permanent. And I'm wearing this white, hard um, AFO to ambulate with my crutches. And I was in so much pain because my back was still healing. And, and it actually took probably two years before I felt like I had a solid structure again. Uh, but I still wasn't you know, up to speed physically the way I was before the accident
0: for the benefit of um, UK listeners we have a national health service here um, which means that if somebody had been injured in the manner that you were they would have been taken by the um, ambulance service to the local um, hospital okay. and then transferred to the nearest specialist hospital that would look after you but there would have been no expense spared and you'd have got the best treatment and it would have been a priority back then it probably would still be today but you wouldn't you wouldn't come out of the hospital perhaps facing a huge insurance bill, but Medicare is not like that in the United States, is it? So who picks up, if you don't mind me asking, who picks up the tab for something like this? Because the, the, the amount of surgery and the medical care that you had over those those months would have, I guess, is that provided by the state or not?
1: Well, in my particular case, I was a 20-year-old college student that was not insured. Mm. So, you know, I was in a hospital for all that time, the rehab center for all that time. And, and, I, and the the bills were just ticking up. There's no telling what the final total would have been, but it would have been astronomical. I mean, just, I can't even fathom. But there was a statute in our state policies called, uh, I think it was Title 19 or something along that line that basically covered what would be considered destitute, which, you know, I mean, I was... I had nothing, literally. And so that covered the bill. Uh, thank wow. God, because that would have changed my life forever having to, you know, work to pay that off. But in my defense, as being a recipient of that, I ended up going into the medical field to give back to the same community that had done so much for me, you know, while I was in the hospital and in the rehabilitation center. I became an x-ray technologist and I worked at children's hospital, I worked at adult hospital, and then I went into sales, and I always sold from the patient perspective versus the financial gain perspective of everybody else in. The end. It was I wouldn't represent equipment that I didn't feel would be to the benefit of, of any patient. So and, uh-huh. and that was all kind of my altruistic get back. So uh, at what point did
0: your triathlon journey start then? Because that's the bit we're really interested in, is is, is you as one of the world's first para-triathletes?
1: So it was 1985 and so Sorry, so how long long is that
0: after your accident?
1: um, It was about three years after I had got out of the hospital, so um, maybe three and a half years I guess total. Okay. Um, So I'm watching TV one weekend in October November, I can't remember exactly which Mm. and I came across the Hawaiian Ironman and I was just I was fascinated from the get-go because I'd always been an athlete. I'd always pushed myself to do pretty much every sport I could, I could think of. And I'm sitting here watching this. And and then they play Julie Moss. They replay the 1982. (laughs) And I'm transfixed at this point because I could relate so much to what she was going through. Mm -hmm. That's the same way I was shuffling across the floor, basically when I got out of the hospital and and I could so relate and she looked so weak, but she looked so determined. And that was me. And I just decided whimsically I'm going to do a triathlon. And I had a 15 minute primer to triathlon at that moment before I committed to it. So it it wasn't a lot. And it it may not have even been that long before I just had a a wheel spinning in my head. Mm -hmm. And it was for no reason other than I wanted to push and test myself. I wasn't out there to get attention. I wasn't out there to, you know, boast myself up for anything along that line. So right after this had aired, the very next day I go out and I buy an old Raleigh 10 speed. It was a 56 centimeter and I ride a 52. So Hmm. as I stood over the top tube, that thing was like right up in the middle and the seat was all the way down. So you could barely even see a seat post. I'm certain the cranks were like 175, you know, what much bigger than the ones that I typically ride. Um, but I managed to to just get going on this thing, and the bike was the first thing that I started doing the, that very next day. Um, and then I went out, and eventually I bought the old plastic toe clips, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that was a challenge for me because uh, I was still kind of working on my balance. I was running and, and I still had trip issues with my left foot and trust me with foot drop. It's hard mm. when you can't lift your foot up to get that, to get your foot in the, in the toe clip, but I managed. And uh, eventually I started uh, taking a lifeguard training so that I could have access to a pool uh, because I couldn't afford a membership. So my brother-in-law stuck me into the university of Tulsa's pool so that I could train there initially and get my swimming chops underneath me. And I had actually been running for a bit before that. I'd done uh, maybe a couple of 10 Ks. And until I discovered triathlon, then it was all in. But, you know, there was no internet. There was no, uh, I think there was a couple of triathlon magazines. And I did subscribe to triathlon and got most of my information from there. But, you know, I was having to adapt to... This new sport in my body and and the way it was reacting to everything, it was, I ended up having to adapt to my equipment more than I adapted my equipment to me. Uh, It's kind of the way that it worked out for me.
0: So, uh, going back to the inspirational video of Julie Moss, I think uh, that was the one that inspired me to sort of focus on trying to get to Kona as well. And uh, actually, when I raced there in 2017, I met Julie Moss and told her that story, and she said, "Oh, that's so sweet of you. I wish I had a I wish I had a dollar for everybody who told me that they'd started oh. out in triathlon from watching that." And I guess yeah. when you your image of Julie crawling along the floor and thinking that's me, and but but all of those people stood there you know, going, come on, you can do it. Probably all of the the um, the nurses and doctors and family members who were trying to will you along to sort of, you know, to, to survive and get, get through your rehab. Um, so there's a huge metaphor in that sort of image, isn't there, of Julie crawling along um, the lead drive.
1: Um, yeah, and it's it's one that I hold still. I mean, it's so dear to me. And I've, I've sent her some tweets and I've never heard back from her, but, you know, it, like you said, She's probably heard that a zillion times, and each story has its own impact, and I don't mm. think mine's you know, any more special than anybody else's would be, to be honest. I'm just,
0: I'm just thinking, imagine if Julie wrote a book where she showcased different inspirational stories of people who have been motivated to do triathlon by her inspirational story. That That would actually be quite some book, wouldn't it?
1: that's a great idea yeah maybe maybe, maybe well, i'm going to
0: <laughs> let's let's propose that to julie and uh, and, and ask her. i want to be your
1: first chapter
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you should be you should oh. be um now i'm guessing that uh, aside from the everyday triathletes and and the people like scott tinley and uh and dave scott and julie and all of those who were uh, sort of in their heyday at that point um there wouldn't really have been any challenged athletes. I'm thinking about Ricky and Dicky, but I think they started a little later than that, didn't they? Ricky and Dicky Hoyt.
1: I'm actually not familiar with them, and I've been doing research on. Oh no, no. Um, I know who you're talking about. Ricky yeah. had cerebral palsy, and his dad used to yes, push him. Yes. But they,
0: they, you know, I remember seeing uh, one of the. It was one of the NBC. Uh, sort of showcase things wasn't it of of Kona they did them every year at Christmas of the race but they had all of the inspirational stories in there of of people who'd been selected to do the event and Ricky and Dickie always featured Um, but I can't I can't remember when they did their first uh, or had their first attempt in Kona but anyway so there you were you you had no um, physically challenged triathletes to inspire you at the time
1: No. no I mean I I Honestly, I didn't see myself as disabled back then. I just saw myself as having had an accident and Mm -hmm. things that I had to deal with. Because, you know, I I was never really introduced to disability with one exception or maybe two, actually. Um, There was a girl in my high school that was an amputee, but she was super athletic. She was a cheerleader and she did all this other stuff in school. And I thought back to that as I was in the hospital for a bit of inspiration And then after I got out, there was a movie about a gentleman named Terry Fox who was American. Yes, yeah, yeah, Terry Fox, and he was another inspiration as well. But again, these these people were amputees, and I had all my limbs. So being that young, I couldn't put two and two together to say we're sort of group, but we're not. You know, because this was before Americans with Disability Act, and it was before uh, para athletics really made the mainstream. Yeah. So. It, this was just me and my own devices going out there saying, hey, I want to be equal to everybody, mm. but I'm not out here to to put my flag in the ground and say, look at me. I just want to do my own thing because that was just, you know, you mm. just got the heart of a head.
0: I did a little bit of research to try and find out when the Paralympics became so popular. I think actually... 2012 when they had the Paralympics in London at the same time as the London 2012 Olympics, you know, just a couple of weeks later, um, there was a huge groundswell of support and, and, um, you know, empathy for, for that. Mm-hmm. But the Paralympics had been, um, run in tandem with the Olympics from Sydney in 2000. And I think then back in to nine, there were Paralympic events going right back to the 1970s, but, um, i guess it wouldn't it would have been a, a real niche sort of thing you wouldn't definitely wouldn't have seen it on the tv any um para swimming for instance um any maybe any wheelchair racing I, I remember if you know a few years ago before the olympics took off you'd have the wheelchair um category at the london marathon and there would be a little bit to feature on those um and i guess tanny dame tanny gray was part of part of that but even that would not go back to 1986 i don't think so you really were um, a trendsetter and a trailblazer.
1: (laughs) And, you know, I never really, again, I never really thought about it that way. I just was out there doing what I loved. I mean, I fell deeply in love with riding a bike. That was just something that even after triathlon, I kept doing. And I did triathlon up through, uh, I think, 1990, maybe 91. And then I just switched strictly to bike racing. And that's where I really figured out that I had Kind of a talent because I was winning my age group in some local races, uh, which, you know, finishing in the upper percentage overall Mm. as a road racer. And it was on uh, an old Torpato. I don't know if you're familiar with the Torpato brand, uh, old Italian brand, very nice bike. It was pink. Uh, I would love that bike and man, mm-hmm. down to friction shifting. I, I still miss all that stuff, you know, before we got all this aero.
0: Mm-hmm. And that was
1: another thing. There was nothing aero back yeah. then, except your tuck. I mean, literally. Uh, and now we have all these great innovations. I remember getting some profile aero bars mm-hmm. and just thinking, if I, and this was after I did triathlon, but I was still doing TTs. I thought how fast I would have been in triathlon if mm-hmm. this, you know, because so much time.
0: I'm thinking about the severity of your injuries. Was there any words of caution or warning from the doctors? You know, like there's some things you shouldn't do, Steve, you know, don't, don't be going out running because that's not going to be good for your leg or your back with all the impact. Um, don't be doing heavy lifting in the gym because of, you know, because of your spine, all that sort of stuff.
1: I did <laughs> I did everything completely opposite of what they told me. to wow. do. When they brought, um, I'm in the hospital at, and they cleared me for physical therapy. They brought in a trapeze over the bed so that I could kind of hoist myself up. And before you knew it, I was doing chin-ups with that thing.
0: Of course you were, doing, yeah. You know, of course you of course yeah. you were. You, you already had the pedigree for a triathlete then.
1: Oh, yeah. And, you know, that really, I kind of took to that because the only part that wasn't really hurting on me or, or fractured was my upper body. Apart
0: from the wrist, so, of course.
1: Well, yeah, and, and that was... I bore most of the weight with my right hand versus my left, but I pushed through it. And, you know, again, it's still, it's relatively crooked to this day and still gives me a few problems, but I have such a high pain tolerance. And I think that's another reason that I gravitated towards triathlon is that, you know, it's a, it's a suffer fest from beginning to end. If it's not, you're not giving it your all. Um, But, you know, I can push push through all that and compartmentalize my pain.
0: So you uh, I guess then given your high pain tolerance and this sort of like willingness to do what the doctors didn't think you'd be able to do. You it, it seems like you threw caution to the windry and it's like well I've I've almost been killed by this flipping tree what's the worst that could happen? I'll just oh, see exactly. what happens.
1: Yeah. I remember the first time that I went swimming and I was so afraid to die because my back was still super stiff. And I knew that it was going to bend going in, but I thought, you know what, it's either now or never. And I probably did it 25 times that day just to work things out. Yeah. Um, you know, push, push, push. And it was always that. I always felt like if I slacked off, I'd go back to what I was, that guy that could barely shuffle across the floor. And that's just Mm -hmm. not who I was. And it's certainly not who I wanted to be. So,
0: Mm. And as a, as a coach, you know, and I've been coaching for 30 years, it barely a day goes by when I don't hear from an athlete who's got injuries, who's got a problem that's limiting their running or the swimming or the biking or all three or causing them pain in their life. And, you know, to everybody's pain is painful to them, isn't it? It doesn't matter whether you've got a blister on your big toe or whether you're recovering from a broken leg or whether you've, um, you know, you've had a bad smash on your bike or you've been trapped in a tree for two hours. Everybody's pain is their pain, isn't it? And you can't diminish yeah. it by saying, well, you know, if you, re- you really know what pain was like if you were knocked over by a semi-trailer or something, because that that's, that's not their pain. But still, um, as triathletes, I think we always think that we're unlucky because we have... This problem and it's stopping me running, or this problem, and I, and sometimes I think that when when we listen to stories like yours, it, it helps us to get a sense of perspective on where we really are, and also, and and this is the positive part out of all this is how, if you've got a growth mindset and an open mind, you can work around most problems in some way. It might not be perfect; it might you might not get your most optimal performance out of it but it beats sitting on your ass doing nothing.
1: Oh, exactly. Yeah, because the, what I figured out eventually is that the harder I pushed myself, the better I felt after because of the endorphins. Mm. I mean, that was mm. just my natural healing and, you know, definitely killed the pain. But what set my pain apart from maybe what an injury type pain would be, which is, you know you can worsen an injury if you're having pain with it so you kind of need to do a workaround on that but mine was like sciatic nerve and you know my wrist uh, as I was on the hoods on the bike or or, you know just riding in general just start to fatigue and start to pain and that was a little bit different because it wasn't an injury it was just chronic Um, so that's how I learned to push through all that but Mm -hmm. now I've got Uh, an even worse (laughs) situation from a pain standpoint, but I think it was all my triathlons and all the the ability to push through that pain that gets me through the days now, because I've got a a disease called arachnoiditis, which is chronic inflammation of the arachnoid tissue that surrounds the spinal cord. It's one of the most painful diseases that there is and it's incurable. And most people are on all kinds of painkillers and, Uh, neurological medications. I was on a slew of them myself, but I took the stance to get off and take more of a a holistic and uh, healthy approach to it. No pills for me. I know that pain is temporary. It's never going to be at its worst for very long. And if you can push through the worst of it, you can get to the other days. And I tend to say I have three types of days. I have good days, I have bad days, and I have survival days. It's the good days and the bad days where I can get my stuff done, but the survival days is just one where I just kind of have to grin down and bear it, because the alternative of being on those, those pills and not being able to do the things that I love physically is just not something I even want to consider. So
0: what what when you, when you because I'm I'm always interested in this it seems that in most of the Western world there's a willingness. To, a common willingness from uh, doctors to prescribe medication. And there's a, common, there's a common willingness from humans to accept that medication and take the easy option. So, you know, I, I've been offered statins for what they say is high calcium in my blood. Um, one of my friends was offered statins because of his high cholesterol. I, I was told the other day that I was pre-diabetic, um, I, which is a bit of a shock to me because I feel like I watch my diet pretty well. Um, but but there's but, but I'd like to exhaust every holistic method and healthy living option to me before I go down the route of taking making the medication. So, in relation to that, what do you do holistically to avoid having to be on medication? And how often do you get those survival days?
1: <laughs> the survival days it's kind of like a roller coaster. Um, I had one yesterday <laughs> and last night. My and, and all my pain is, is regionalized in my foot. It's just all concentrated in my foot, but it, it migrates from the back of my leg to the top of my foot to the side to the underside. And it feels like somebody's stabbing me with an ice pick. It's it's all neurological, it's all electrical. Um, but from a holistic standpoint, it's the main key that I found is is literally exercise. But for me, I start my exercise in pain. And I, I end in pain. Uh, and there's always a trade-off in the long run. Uh, a couple of hours after I finish and the endorphins are, are all used up, that's when my pain starts to increase or mm. or you know sometimes it'll stay the same. It's really never identical from one ride to the next or one swim to the next or anything along like that
0: line. It makes me think that if, if the endorphins are helping you to manage the pain a little bit or sort of putting it to one side, um, where the short bursts of exercise would be better than long intervals of exercise, because you get a, you get a regular burst of endorphins, then, don't you?
1: Yeah, that that's actually a great idea. And uh, but I've always been, and, and I don't when I my endurance now is a lot less. I've had two heart attacks. I got nine stents, and you know wow. I, <laughs> I I but I still push myself. I mean, I, give me an obstacle, put it in my path, and I will crush it. Um it's and, and I'm not saying that boastfully, so as much as I love the challenge, but I wish I didn't have so many of them. Mm. It, but it, it I'll take what is put in my path, I'll go over it, around it, under it, or through it. That's just typically the way that I've been raised. Do,
0: do you know where that you said you'd had some issues with your heart? Do you know where that's as a result of the traumas that you suffered, the surgery and the medication, or is that something that that would have happened to you anyway if you haven't had all of those challenges?
1: Yeah, that's genetics. And okay. the, I was talking to my cardiologist about this. I said, you know, I have been an endurance athlete all my life with the, that exception of when I had to reinvent myself. Hmm. And part of that was because my grandfather died young. I was uh, 20. I mean, that, the whole me moving to the farm and cutting firewood because my, was because my grandfather passed. I moved back to help my grandmother with the farm. And he was a significant part of my life. And uh, he had died of this heart attack. And, you know, eventually I figured out that it does run in the family. And right. so I used endurance sports to try to stay healthy, thinking that was going to do it. But my cardiologist says, "Look, you, I don't care how fast you are, you're never going to outrun genetics. It's always going to catch up to you. And so that was all genetic.
0: Mm, yeah. I, sp- I mean, I suppose it's, I've been in, I'm have been i involved in a heart research study now, sort of, for older endurance athletes. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're still not sure of the mechanism that causes these you know, people my age and your age to have heart problems. But, they, you know, genetics is one bit, diet might be another. I suppose what you can do with exercise and diet is to do the best you can so it mitigates the genetics a little bit, you know. Or or you can sit back, spend all your day eating McDonald's and drinking beer and not doing any exercise, and genetics will just hit you a bit sooner.
1: Well, you say McDonald's, and, and I'm of the McDonald's generation. Mm. And so, you know, I can't say I didn't eat my fair share of quarter pounders. And, <laughs> you know, now that I know how much fat and cholesterol is in that, it's just crazy.
0: Yeah. Well, you, yeah. You, was it supersize me? The the film with <laughs> Morgan Spurlock was horrifying what happened to him. But then he did just oh eat my God. He, he did just eat McDonald's for uh, 24-7 for a, for a month or two, didn't he? Um, yeah, and going, didn't going, going back to your training, um, so you've got these, you've got these injuries that that you've sort of the chronic injuries that you've got. Were there any times when you pushed too far in your training and actually, you know, took a backward step in your health?
1: Um, well, there were some missteps. Uh, I started riding without a helmet, which you know back then nobody wore helmets. No, but they started they re- did require it for the triathlon, so I had to buy one eventually. But I remember riding and. It it had just started misting a little bit, and I, you know, when it first starts to rain, all that oil comes up out of the asphalt. Yeah. And I took a corner a little too fast, and again, I was not knowledgeable back then, Uh, so bike went out from underneath me, and I banged my head, and I'm certain I got a concussion. But like any good cyclist or even triathlete, you're going to get back up on your machine just to start moving forward because that's what you do. Mm -hmm. And so I did, and I pushed myself through it, but uh you know i learned a long time ago in fact uh i helmets are so so important but in 2016 i had a training wreck uh just coming in the neighborhood at the end of my ride 27 miles an hour my garment just goes straight down and i'd gone done an endo i'd head first impact straight into the to the asphalt and i kind of wake up with stars going where am i and yeah, I, again, I got on my bike and I made it home somehow. I text my wife with a picture. She comes home and we go to the hospital and said, like, oh, yeah, I got a concussion. <laughs> would, have, would have died otherwise. So helmets are vitally important.
0: I, I've, got, I've got one of those uh, 40 to zero moments on my garment as well when I oh, broke my okay. collarbone.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, fact, you almost want to post it, you know, and say, look, this is crazy.
0: Well, I I, I just I couldn't work out what I'd, I'd hit a little bump. You know, it wasn't gravel. It wasn't wet. It was just like a little compression, but, but I, I had my hands loosely on the handlebars, and I, you know, I should have had a better grip, um, and it just threw me off onto my shoulder and sort of rolled me across my back. Um, and uh, my like...
1: Sorry, do you remember right before and right after the accident? Is, is there like a, a time frame where you have no memory of the uh, of the accident, where you just have a little black space?
0: Yeah, I remember. I remember seeing this little. Um, this little circular, it's almost like a drill hole about three three or four inches in diameter, where they'd take a core out of the tarmac. And I remember, th- and, and it was a little damp around there, like it was, like it was a drain cover that was leaking. And I remember thinking, I'm going to avoid that in case it's slippery. And moving out. And I think there was a little compression bump. And because I only had my hands loosely around the brakes, um, as I hit that, it twisted the handlebars and and just just basically threw me off like a like a, a jockey being thrown off a horse. And I can remember looking at the hole and thinking, right, I'll just move to the right of that. And then the next thing I remember, lying on the floor, thinking, what happened there? Yeah. And I was looking around to see if there was a car, if there was something I'd missed, if if I, you know, there was something that had hit me that I hadn't noticed. And then as I as I went to sit up, thinking, oh, that feels really painful. As I sat up, my shoulder dropped forward, and I'm thinking, it was so painful around my shoulder shoulder blade. I remember thinking that I'd I'd fractured that and so I tried to lift my arm up and I couldn't and so uh, I'm looking around I'm on i I'm on. A, I'm in the middle of the road but unfortunately it was a side road so there was no traffic coming in it was only a couple of days after Christmas so it was very very quiet um, so my bike the front wheel was buckled like a banana um, I managed to find my Garmin that was the first thing I went like stop the Garmin <laughs> I found that nestling under the sort of wheel of a car so I went and got that and then I dragged my bike off the road and then I'm then I'm the downside of it being at christmas was there was nobody about and it because it was about 2 2:30 in the afternoon so I went and knocked on this door and there was his family having there must have been there sort of like the children had come over and so they were having a belated christmas dinner and they'd all got the hats on and they were getting into the turkey <laughs> and I'm knocking on the door and I'm saying excuse me can you help me please and um yeah, so it is it is a bit of a black spot. I wasn't knocked out. I did have a I did have significant damage to the back of my helmet, but I didn't have any head injuries. They did uh, they did do the x-rays and keep me in overnight. Um but yeah, that that there was probably a three or four seconds when I didn't wasn't aware of what was going on. It's
1: weird, isn't it? And, and you know that I think it's always the most violent part of an accident because yeah. the it's a brain's way of protecting, I think. Head injury that I've had like that has always been. It's like somebody just kind of clipped out this point and this point in the memory, and you can't remember the most, the worst part of it. Yeah. It's just always the recovery of uh, what just happened.
0: Yeah, mm. crazy. So um, you decided to do this triathlon. Tell tell us
1: about the triathlon then, because it was that was a, yes, that it was, was an
0: ordeal in itself, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, this was the important part of this whole story. Um, I make it to the day of the race. I'm not able to swim a full mile yet. I'm not run, uh, ridden 25 miles yet, but I have done a couple of 10Ks, but I, I've never put all three of these sports together in any one single day. So I make it through the swim, have a couple of cramps along the way. It had rained the night before. The water was freezing. It was so cold. It would have been uh, wetsuit legal, but there were no wetsuits back then. So make it through the swim come out and as I look over my shoulder, I still see uh, splashes in the water so I'm not last, which again, I was a moment of pride for myself and it allowed me to push on. Mm. make it through the bike. Um, and I had pretty good headwind, uh, but I pushed through it and so now I put two of these sports together. And I've got one more to do to become a triathlete. So I start <laughs> off on the run, and it was the biggest eye-opener for me, getting off that bike after doing circles and now trying to stride. My legs were just gone, but I pushed through it. Uh, I couldn't even tell you what my mile pace was, but it was horrible. Uh, I'm sure an older lady could have walked faster than I was running. But I, at some point towards the very end, I pull off into the woods for a bio break, and as I come back out, I see the sweet vehicle. So now I know that I'm dead last. And it was, they followed me all the way back in. But as I round the corner towards the finish line, they're now doing the awards ceremony. And it took a while back then because it was not digital. I mean, it was all by hand, Mm -hmm. by timer. So they're doing the awards ceremony. The guy that's got the bullhorn says, hey, here comes our last athlete. Let's give him a round of applause. And I mean, they just erupted for me and it felt so great. It pushed me on to cross that finish line. And I was now a triathlete. I could consider myself that. And that's, you know, you had mentioned before about all the old triathletes not being triathletes. Once you're a triathlete, you're always a triathlete. Mm-hmm. You've, done, you've, you've earned that badge. And, and I felt especially so that I could say that. But then it wasn't until um, COVID that I figured out that as I started doing research in, on paratriathlon, that after Pat Briskis. There's a blank for like almost a decade, but my slot fit right in there with his when he started doing his triathlons, uh, in the very early eighties. And so I realized that I was the second disabled athlete to have ever done the a triathlon and, and it was an Olympic distance, but I was more importantly, the first with a spinal cord injury, uh, after coming back, you know, three and a half years earlier, not, even hardly being able to shuffle across the floor Mm. to now swim in a mile, riding 25 and running 6.2. That was, um, I mean, it was a moment that that it's very hard to express the well of emotion that I got when I had completed this and and nobody knew my story. I was actually afraid to tell the organizers anything Mm. because had they known my accident, they may have gone, wow, we don't need this guy. Dying on us, you know what I mean, and, and getting hurt or anything, it's a liability. So, I flew under the radar and I continued flying under the radar over the next several years as I continued competing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never finished last again, I never stopped a race. I always finished every race I entered. And then, eventually, when I moved into cycling, I started winning my age group again. And um, I really wish that I would have known about the Paralympics way back in the day. I think I would have made a hell of a cyclist. Uh, yeah, I definitely would have pursued it had I known there was mm. even such a thing, but it was in uh, maybe 2013 or 2014 before I realized that there was such a thing as paralympics or parasports.
0: So your your injuries then and and you know, I guess that you would call them disabilities, that they would that would fit you into one category or another in, in the Paralympic sports, would it?
1: Back then it would have been a, a C three. And I based that on uh, a couple of other people that had similar injuries and, and similar uh, disability, mm-hmm. um, and that was that was my category going in for cycling. For triathlon, I've actually not been categorized, but I think I, I would be a PT two, possibly because of uh, I have such extensive loss of function now compared to back then, because the arachnoiditis is slowly paralyzing and below. And base, also, you so. talk
0: to, you talk about your dropped foot. So that's that's a nerve thing, but does that mean you don't have any sensation in that foot then at all, or you do have sensation? But do you have do you have um, any proprioception in that foot?
1: It's all region, Um, like on the out on the outside of the foot, I have very little feeling. Uh, On the anterior tibialis, I've got no feeling or function, so it's a huge trip hazard. And then I have a little bit of weakness, or had a little bit of weakness in my. Calf of my soul Um, so it was, you know, had basically thirty percent of a leg, I guess, if you want to look at it that way, uh, or, or uh, of that part of the leg, the lower leg.
0: But um, you talked about the bike you got, I'm mean, saying that it was, uh, you know, two sizes too big. Did you? Most people think of para triathletes having to have adapted equipment, but other than a bike that was oversized you it appears yeah. didn't have any adaptations to your equipment at all you just got what you could you you used what you could get
1: yeah it, I mean this bike was $50 at a pawn shop and it's all I could afford it's really all the money that I had mm-hmm. and so uh, I eventually added toe clips and and that was probably the only adaptation that that I put on the bike but that's not any different than what anybody else would do so um mm. Yeah, it's, but you know, and, and I will say that uh, triathlon even back then was expensive, but even more so now, yeah. which is why you know, as a, I represent uh, USA Triathlon Foundation as an ambassador, and you know, I'm raising funds to help people, the young kids, and and especially my my devotion is to the disabled athlete because. Uh-huh. I'm not afraid to approach anybody now that's in a wheelchair, that's an amputee, that you know wears an AFO saying, Hey, you know about disabled sports because I didn't for so long and I'm so happy to introduce it to people because it's such a life changer.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So other than this overwhelming sense of achievement of sort of, you know, I'm almost back from the dead, if you like. Um what other impacts did, did finishing that triathlon have on your life? Did you, did you sort of develop a can-do-anything type of uh, attitude to, to other things outside of sport?
1: I went from a mediocre student, and, and I'd always been driven by sport, but not necessarily by education. But I, I, I had such self-confidence after finishing that race, my grades bumped up to A's wow. and B's versus C's and D's in college. Uh, pushed myself through college and, and paid my own way through college uh, as a result working part-time jobs. I was a bartender. I was worked at a medical library. I was a, a lifeguard. And um, I mean, it just, it changed so much when you have that much self-confidence mm-hmm. and you're not cocky, you can get a lot done. If you're cocky, you kind of focus too much on the cocky and not the self-confidence of pushing you through the new goals. Mm-hmm. So,
0: um, you did triathlons for, what for four or five years you never you never thought of trying to uh, fill out that what, what do they call the uh, Iron Man um, slogan anything is possible you never tried to uh, oh. prove that that was all all correct and, and go to Kona or, or do do the, the full one
1: well I really you know when I because I became such a fan of, of the Iron Man after that first one I kept thinking I'm gonna do this someday. But I was always so busy with college and having to work at the same time. I had very little time available mm. to train for an Ironman back then. And even then, it was there weren't a lot of uh, where I was trying to access my information. There weren't a lot of uh, training uh, formulas and you know just a schedule that I could follow that would adapt to everything that I was going through. Mm. But I always had that dream because that was my inspiration. Yes. Uh, and then as I got older, you know, I started having more pain and, and more issues. And I thought, okay, if I'm gonna do this, I have to do it with lack, you know, less pain. But then it was it came down to a matter of cost of getting over there. So it was always one barrier that I if it was physical, I could I could handle it and I could deal with it. But if, if it's a financial, that's pretty much out of my realm.
0: Yeah. And I'm thinking back into the early nineties and mid nineties, there wasn't that many. Iron distance races anyway was there in America I think probably there was there was Ironman Canada um, there was nothing in the USA until I can't I think Florida outside of Kona Florida maybe and then Lake Placid were the other ones yeah. uh, there would yeah. have been the small time ones like Wildflower well not so small but definitely not Ironman
1: yeah um, there, there were a lot of sprints and there were a lot of uh, we called them quarter Ironman back then it, but there was no Olympic distance Uh it, wasn't even such a thing. So, uh, But, yeah, it was, you know, the little regional races. And and that information was hard to get out there to people. You had to know somebody that knew somebody that knew something mm-hmm. about it mm. because it just was not that accessible. There were no 70.3 stickers on cars that would self-identify wow. as a athlete, right? So it was uh, kind of a need to know, almost, if you saw somebody riding a bike, which even back then was rare in the, in the States. Yeah. Um, you know, LeBron had... Yet to make his big impact on the sport, so um, yeah, it was just—I mean, it was so fortuitous that I—I I just happened upon that because had I missed it, there were no replays uh, of mm-hmm. things back then like there are today, and you couldn't access it from the internet. So I just think that all those stars aligned for me to be able to do that, and I was the right individual, I think, because of my pain tolerance and the ability to get through that accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a never-say-die attitude.
0: Have you, I mean, you talk about the pain you get in your foot. Do you have any other long-term impacts um, and health sort of complications as a result of Uh, your accident?
1: Just, you know, I'm starting to lose balance. And, uh, you know, as I lose more function below the waist, it it creates an issue. But I wear AFOs uh, to ride my bike. You talk
0: about AFOs. Can you just just say what that is? Because I'm not familiar with that term.
1: Yeah. Can I I go grab one right quick and show you? Yeah. Yeah. So at this
0: point, Steve has popped out of his office to show us
1: uh, an example of
0: an AFO. (laughs) Okay. Okay.
1: This is it, right? Carbon fiber. Yeah. And it's got a a foot plate. So normally you'd have a – this is a carbon fiber sole, and I have my carbon fiber on the inside, so I get twice the stiffness, um, and it straps around with a magnetic strap. Okay. So it's so, so so from
0: here, actually, it looks like a prosthetic leg, but it's not it's really a brace for your for your lower leg attached to yes. your shoe that gives you stiffness around the ankle,
1: exactly, yeah, because my ankles I have no strength in my ankles uh because of my lower legs are basically i have less than twenty percent function below the knee, so when I go to push down on the pedal, it's you know too flexible, I get no pressure on the ball of my foot, yeah, okay it's allows me to ride like everybody else. I mean, when I'm on my bike, trust me, I I turn a lot of heads with these things. Mm. Uh, I like to think in a good way. uh, And I like to think that I inspire people, you know, hey, this guy's out there riding. Because I, Just as a joke, one time, some guy asked me if I was wearing shorts or riding a chicken because my legs are so thin uh, now because of all the muscle atrophy. But I don't take offense to that. It, It takes a lot to get my gander up. Yeah. So, just what does AFO stand for then? Ankle, foot, orthotic. Okay, yeah. right. And if I could, this is Thrive Orthopedics. Um, they yeah. were so generous as to supply me with my AFOs for cycling. And uh, I'm an ambassador for them and trying to do good things within this market. They've got a fantastic AFO.
0: So, do you wear one of those on each leg?
1: When I ride, yes. Okay. Uh, when I walk, no. And the reason for not doing it when I walk is because it's uh, the pain. When I put a shoe on, my pain is in my foot it is excruciating. Mm. Uh, it's that pressure; it's so hypersensitive. Mm-hmm. And when I put a brace on, it makes it even that much more difficult. So I tend to hobble. Um, around, okay, eventually I'll probably have to put it on and just endure the pain, which, you know, I put off as long as I can, but I know I'll be able to do it.
0: And so, uh, I mean, you talked about being an ambassador, you talked about um, sort of trying to be an
1: advocate
0: and um, for people, you know, other para-athletes that you meet. Do you do do any public speaking or anything to share this story?
1: Well, uh, you know, I'm obviously doing some podcasts here and uh, I am moving into motivational speaking. I just recently... Put together a flyer that i'm going to start handing out some local organizations here in edmond mm-hmm. hoping to kind of get my chops wet and share my story because i it's at this point i think it's less about me as much as it's or it's more about the impact that the story has not mm-hmm. necessarily what i could do but by retelling it you know i want to share it with the world and, and show people that they can push through so much mm-hmm. um i was I'm not a special guy. Trust me. I'm just like everybody else. I just have different goals, I guess.
0: Well, Steve, if you don't mind me saying like most special guys, you're very humble about that. Um, But but it it takes a lot to have gone through what you've done and uh, still keep smiling. Um, And I hope that people take you up on, on um, engaging you to, uh, to do some speaking for them because it is an inspirational story. And from a, from a time when we didn't have many inspirational stories, so we we need to share that with people like Bob Babbitt, who uh, he yeah. and his Challenged Athlete Foundation, um, because yeah. he yeah. he champions those sort of uh, inspirational stories. And uh, yeah,
1: he is uh, he's an amazing guy, and, and just watching what he's done with that organization over the years, yeah. it's it's a and that's really he did what I wanted to uh, to do all those years ago, but just didn't know how. And I again, I didn't want to be the face of whatever it was i was trying to do to inspire mm. but i realized that you know it, it kind of comes with the territory and you know stories need to be told that can inspire people especially in today's day and age i mean there's so much negativity in the world and we need more positive
0: absolutely well i i do hope that this provides our listeners with with more than just a little bit of positivity steve it's a, a, an amazing story I, I really appreciate you sharing this with us um if people want to find out a little bit more about you, where can they go to uh, to read more about your story? And maybe um, we'll put a link to that video definitely in the, in the article.
1: Okay. Um, Instagram, SP Lovelace. On Instagram, they can follow my journey. I'm not a big poster type of guy. I'm not a subscribe and like guy. I'm just, you know, if, if you're interested in seeing some of the pictures and some of the things I do. And then SP underscore Lovelace on uh, Twitter.
0: Okay. Well, we'll share those with everybody. And uh, hopefully when your book comes out, Steve, plug, plug. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I've gotten journals. I've got like four volumes of of notes that I've taken over the years, just wanting to pass it on. It, originally, it was just going to go to my kids and, you know, share that story with them because that that's been my audience up to this point. Um mm. uh, but, yeah, I've been encouraged. I failed English, so I was not a great English student. So <laughs> there's no telling how it would actually turn out, but I'm putting my best effort into it. And you never know, maybe within the next year.
0: There's plenty of people out there who can um, edit a, um a manuscript (laughs) i think so uh, i wouldn't worry about that one anyway listen it's been fabulous thank you very much for sharing the story i'm so glad that you reached out to me so that we could connect and and do this podcast so best wishes with everything you do best wishes with the motivation speaking and I, i look forward to shaking your hand in person one day
1: oh absolutely so
0: i'd welcome the opportunity thank you so much you're most welcome steve lovelace thank you very much Thank you again to Steve for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human podcast. As usual, there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. To make sure that you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button. Also, don't forget to look for that link in the show notes so that you can download your free mobility program. That's all for now. Have a great week and I will see you on the next episode.